I'm Corey Washington, and this is Manifold. Steve Shu is away this week. Our guest today is Barbara O'Brien. Barbara is a professor at Michigan State University College of Law, where she teaches classes in criminal law and criminal procedure. She is also currently the editor of the National Registry of Exonerations, which collects, analyzes, and disseminates information about all known exonerations of innocent criminal defendants in the United States from 1989 to the present. The registry provides a virtual home for exoneration stories and also an accessible, searchable statistical database about the cases. Today we'll be speaking with Barbara about her work with the National Exoneration Registry, new developments in the fight against wrongful convictions, and how race and class affect the likelihood that a person will be wrongfully convicted, and how long that person will spend in prison. Welcome to Manifold, Barbara. Thank you for having me. How do you define a wrongful conviction? Well, we document exonerations, and an exoneration is a type of wrongful conviction, and sometimes we use that we use the term wrongful conviction interchangeably with a false conviction, but you could think of a wrongful conviction as much broader than much broader than that to include any case where somebody was convicted of something that was more serious than what they actually did or convicted uh, without proper process. But when we talk about wrongful convictions in this context, we really do mean an, uh, somebody who is actually innocent of the crime, either there was a crime and somebody else did it, or there was no crime at all. So wrong guy, wrong gal. Um, yeah. In many of the cases, it is. Or a, no crime, perhaps. Sometimes it's there's no crime. In fact, we have you know quite a few cases in the registry where there just wasn't a crime. So you know this is uh, an issue that actually goes back centuries, as I'm sure you're aware. I think some of the first laws designed to prevent wrongful convictions involve cases where actually someone disappeared and uh, I guess they just sort of moved away. And at one point in time, I think the original British case, three people were hanged for it, and then the guy like showed up. Yes, actually, we do have um, our database begins uh, with exonerations that have occurred from 1989 on, but we have another database that tracks historical exonerations that, that go back as far as we can find out about in the United States. It's not as comprehensive. It's a lot harder to find records about that. But in some of those cases, um, the victim will show up at their funeral. And the you know before the person could be executed, they were exonerated. So we do see some of those cases in our pre-1989 database. And this led to laws that required a body actually be found, I think. Yeah. Those rules, I don't believe they're universal, but that's a pretty common rule that that, and at the very least, as a practical matter, it's very hard to prove a murder without a body. I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but I do think it's interesting that you brought up the fact that there's a difference between wrongful conviction and exoneration because, you know, I think there's a clearly a large group of people who are exonerated, but it sounds like there's also a, even a much larger group of people who may be convicted of something, they may be a little bit guilty, maybe slightly involved, but convicted of something far more serious, and they're never exonerated. And they're often never given clemency or not have their uh, sentences reduced. Um, are you worried that the focus on exonerations may basically cast a shadow in a way or at least lead to a lack of attention on these this broader range of cases? Well, so that's that's correct. I mean, there are uh, – if you think of exonerations as a type of wrongful conviction, but uh, there are the kinds of wrongful convictions you were referring to where someone was – convicted of um, a murder when it really was a manslaughter or, um, you know, something along those lines. Um, you know, I think there's sort of two ways the, uh, the focus on exonerations it can go, and maybe maybe both can be true, um, that the focus on uh, actual innocence, like pure innocence, um, might make people less sympathetic to the cases of overconviction. Um, which I think is is a huge problem, particularly overcharging that can lead to very serious convictions for something that might have been uh, might, really should have been a lesser conviction. So that's possible. But on the other hand, what I think you see happen is as people get interested in the phenomenon of false convictions, they're sort of exposed to all of these different ways that the justice system is failing, whether it's by you know, mandatory minimum sentences that lead to these draconian outcomes or cases where people are sort of shuffled through the justice system, you know, sort of assembly line justice. I mean, it really does sort of highlights 
it it brings in stark relief these these problems that are really salient in the cases of false convictions, but are actually undermining the fair administration of justice at all levels. And I think you can kind of see that. I mean, I do follow a lot of sort of the popular press on false convictions. And what you see are the sort of the people getting interested in this idea that somebody gets convicted of something they didn't do, but they're also then really interested in the idea that somebody gets in the system and then they have a probation violation and then they can't get out of the system. I think about a good example of that is, you know, serial season one, everybody knows this case um, and that, you know, that a lot of people think that is a wrongful conviction case. Serial season three is about the justice system looking at it sort of through the lens of like one one courthouse and just all the different stories that happen in that courthouse in um, in Cleveland, Ohio. And those are not necessarily cases of false convictions, but it sort of highlights the uphill battle people face. They maybe they did something wrong, but then, you know, they get brought into the system and they miss a court date. And the next thing you know, there's a warrant out for them and things just sort of snowball and get worse and worse. You know, it's going to be a lot of the same audience who listens to Serial Season 1 is going to listen to Serial Season 3. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of interest uh, these days in kind of basically looking back over our sort of fairly severe policies on crime and drugs of the past 30 years and realizing exactly people charge uh, overcharged for crimes. And once you get into the system, it's very hard to get a job once you get out. And then you're kind of uh, basically, uh, you're essentially given a kind of mark for the rest of your life that makes it really, really hard. And it seems like there's, there's at least an inclination now to look at a bunch of those convictions and maybe wipe them out or in many cases reduce them. Yeah, I think of exonerations and interest in wrongful convictions as sort of a gateway to to these other issues. And, you know, one big development in the last decade has been prosecutors' offices in mostly major metropolitan areas uh, creating conviction integrity units where they'll actually put prosecutorial resources and police resources into revisiting cases where there's a plausible claim of innocence. And there's talk um, in, in in starting sentence review units. Um, and some conviction integrity units actually don't just stick to the kind of wrong man or false conviction cases, but they're interested in reviewing all sorts of cases where there's overcharging or, or over-sentencing. Yeah, I recall, I think the first prosecution integrity office was started in Texas, wasn't it? I believe so. Which is sort of ground zero for both death penalty and wrongful convictions, and perhaps wrongful executions, too, as we may get into. It's so interesting because, on one hand, you know, Texas is, um, I mean, it's it's pretty law and order place. Um, they, I mean, they have a death penalty and they use it. But on the other hand, they also have one of the best compensation systems in the country for wrongfully convicted people. We've got the worst here, don't we, in Michigan? It's, um, no, I, I I think there are places uh, that might be worse, actually. There are places <laughs> like Pennsylvania doesn't have any system in place, um, uh, but they're working on that there. And um, in Texas has, uh, and these were in reaction to cases of, you know, just really stark injustice, um, has more liberal discovery rules than other places do. You do see this happen in cases where, you know, just sort of like a really high-profile, terrible crime can lead to a new criminal law based on it. You know, this, you know, Megan's Law or something like that. Um, the same thing can actually happen with criminal justice reform. So the Michael Morton Act in Texas was passed in response to a ca uh, case of wrongful conviction uh, where uh, Michael Morton spent more than two decades in prison for murdering his wife, and the state had and he didn't do it. Um, state had hidden all sorts of evidence uh, that implicated another person. Um, so straightforward Brady violation? Oh, yes. So, yeah, really egregious Brady violations. Um, we should stop at this point and define Brady violations. Yes, good, good idea. So Brady versus Maryland is a Supreme Court case in which the, the court held that the government is required under the Fifth Amendment to disclose to the defense any evidence that is both exculpatory and material. Um, it's can the, how can it be exculpatory without being material? Um, well, it, it's so there's a lot of problems with the materiality component because um, 
because it's always a judgment made in hindsight. Um, and so the judges are sort of deciding, would this have made a difference? But exculpatory doesn't mean that it's, you know, dispositive, right? Exculpatory sure, could sure. be um, they talk to a witness, you know, they have eyewitnesses and they talk to one witness who described the perpetrator very differently than the other witnesses and they don't. Or they get a lead on another suspect and they don't follow it and they don't turn that information over to the defense. I mean, it's not necessarily a smoking gun that proves the defendant's innocence, but it's uh, it is it, it tends to favor the defense. Or it could be, and it also includes impeachment evidence. So if the um, witness who's testifying against the defendant is getting a reduced sentence uh, in consideration for their testimony and the state doesn't disclose that, that is seen as, that's considered exculpatory evidence. Um, it doesn't prove the defendant's innocent, but it's something that it's, it, it's exculpatory in that it tends to favor the defense. Um, and so in cases where... It, um, the state doesn't disclose favorable evidence to the defense. Uh, it doesn't mean the defendant will necessarily get a new trial or a new sentencing hearing, as the case may be, if the reviewing court does not believe that it was material, that there's a reasonable probability that the outcome would have been more favorable had the, had the state disclosed this evidence to the defense. That's clearly a really, really sensitive judgment there on probabilities, yes. or how accurate they are in making that judgment. Yes, I mean they're in, they have to by by definition it's a, it's it's you're engaging in hindsight and you're looking back and saying what would the jury have done with this or more even even more attenuated you're asking what would the defense attorney have done with this information because once it's turned over the state doesn't have to tell the jury they have to turn it over to the defense and the defense is supposed to make whatever use of it they they can and it's also, I mean, but as, as a practical matter, you know, Brady material is by its nature hidden. If it wasn't hidden, it wouldn't be Brady material. So it's just kind of serendipity that you as the defendant would come across it and be able to make the Brady claim. So the, the failure to turn evidence or Brady violation led to this new law in Texas, the Morton Law? It was, um, so it was a case of wrongful conviction in which the post-conviction defense team uncovered some really egregious misconduct on the part of the prosecutor that led to uh, Texas passing the Michael Morton Act, which has much more... Um, puts a lot more onus on the prosecution to disclose evidence um, than the Constitution requires. This leads us to our more general discussion about the causes of wrongful convictions. I think we, you know, I think the first DNA exoneration was about 1987. I think it was in, I think in England they freed someone. So we had like, and that's I think was a point at which people really began to focus on wrongful convictions. We had a lot of research since then about what leads to wrongful convictions and exonerations. One of them. I take it, is failure to disclose exculpatory evidence. What are the other leading factors that we know now cause wrongful convictions? Uh, perjury and false accusation is the most prevalent contributing factor in the exonerations that we see. Mistaken witness identification, um, forensic error, or even fraud is a significant contributing factor, and, and just sort of official misconduct uh, of all of all kinds, whether it be witness tampering, coercive interrogations. It really depends. You know, we, we often talk about the causes of wrongful convictions, and, and, and um, we, we actually frame it, the registry, more as contributing factors, right? Because it's, it's, it's really hard to say if this hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had the wrongful conviction. There's often, and, and often any uh, case of wrongful conviction has more than one factor. That's very frequent. And really, so we, we often think about, well, what are the leading causes or factors associated with, with false convictions? But it really depends a lot on the type of case. So in cases, where you don't see too many false confession cases uh, outside of murders because murders, uh, getting, an, getting a confession from someone, uh, getting a false confession from someone, if it's the product of... Uh, really extensive interrogation. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about a case where somebody is, you know, for whatever reason, mentally unstable, and they they sort of voluntarily come forward and falsely confess. And that does happen. But the cases where some where the interrogation produces a false confession, those are significant investment of investigatory resources. You're not going to get somebody in the room and 
interrogate them for eight straight hours because of a somebody broke into a car and stole something out of it. It's going to be a case with very high stakes. So you are more likely to see a false confession in a case that's a murder case, like in a really serious case, whereas you're more likely to see a mistaken witness identification in a rape case, right? Because you're less likely to see it in a murder case because you don't have the surviving victim to make the identification. You may have other witnesses, but you're less likely to. So in, in cases of child sexual abuse that result in exoneration, those are those are frequently perjury or false accusation and, uh, and sometimes faulty forensics. Uh, so it really does depend on the type of case, the type of, of contributing factor that you see. It seems like there's actually an upstream cause in the case of these uh, false confessions because the police essentially develop tunnel vision, become convinced it's one guy who committed the crime and then try to extract a confession. Is that right? They tend to sort of zero in on somebody wrongly and then basically, I don't blunt, beat it out of the person or kind of interrogate out of the person. Is that that's my image of how these wrongful confessions happen. It's not that someone's crazy and confesses to it. They're sort of pushed to a confession by the investigators. Yes. Uh, I think that is true. Um, we don't have great data on the length of interrogation. Um, we do keep track of it when we when we can tell from the the materials that we're, we're working from how long the, the interrogation lasted. Um but you're right. They they well, they do tend to be pretty long. There are some cases where the defendant uh, confesses falsely very quickly. Those are cases usually that involve violence. Um, there are occasionally cases where somebody who has um, some sort of mental illness might confess. But you're right. That's not the typical situation. It's usually um, a situation where the the you know the the detectives really think they got the right person, and they've they've got they, they're trying to persuade this person to tell them what happened. But we see all kinds. I mean, we do see some cases, uh, a fair number of cases where physical violence is used. I think um, you know, out of Chicago, there's a there's a sordid history of that. Oh, um, L.A. also with the Ramparts uh, team. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the Ramparts is they're so. It's hard to get data on that. It's hard to know even just how many defendants were implicated. And, and either the thing is we-, we so I guess we should back up and give people a context on- um, You're right. Yeah. We should. <laughs> so the, uh, the the Chicago case was a series of police officers who were effectively taking black defendants down into the basement of these precincts mm-hmm. and torturing them until they confessed. Now, were those mostly murder cases or were there other types of cases where the police were convinced they had the person- and then effectively tried to beat a confession out of them. Yeah, the, um, the, they're mostly murder cases, uh, the exonerations that resulted from it. It doesn't mean it wasn't happening in other kinds of cases, but as far as the exonerations in the registry, they are um, almost entirely murder cases. There was a another scandal that is sort of still unfolding in Cook County, which is Chicago, uh, involving Detective Ronaldo Guevara, in his cases, he, he was accused, and there's pretty substantial evidence that he also was abusing suspects uh, more recently. So you would think that after Burgess' cases had unraveled that, you know, they always hear the one bad apple. But it it looks like that there's a, there's a bit of a culture problem in the Cook County <laughs> Police Department that uh, this has continued to happen. And, you know, it, it, it's usually – there's often a, a single – bad actor who's sort of involved in, in sort of the common thread in these cases, but they're working with other people too. Yeah, I thought it was a team in some of these cases. Yeah. Uh, Burge was in charge of a team. I mean, there's another scandal uh, out of Cook County that came to light in the last few years. Sergeant Watts was going to one particular public housing complex, and he was he was personally involved in drug dealing and he in shaking down drug dealers as well and he would go to people he saw he would just see some some usually a guy standing around or walking into his apartment stop him ask him where the drugs were if he had any drugs and he says and the guy said you know I don't know anything about that he would say you're under arrest put drugs on him and framed him um, and defendants were complaining about this saying you know the cop the cop planted these drugs on me but who's going to believe that, right? A few of them went to trial, but most of them entered guilty pleas because that just is that's just not a defense that 
typically works. Uh, it wasn't until the FBI got involved and investigated Sergeant Watts and some of his colleagues, and they caught him on tape engaging in, I think, shaking down a drug dealer, and, and everything started to unravel. And I think we haven't seen the end of those Watts exonerations yet. So this leads us into a topic that I really want to get into with to I want to get into with you, which is kind of the racially tinged character of many of these cases. Uh, it seems like the defendants, the targets in these cases are black. And um, I think that's also true in the case of Ramparts in L.A. Yes. So it seems like you know there are many areas where there's allegations that there's racial bias in the criminal justice system. And one of the chief empirical questions is whether these uh, disparities remain after control for confounding factors like rates of offending. But in these uh, sort of large-scale cases of misconduct, it seems that there's very little doubt that the overwhelming majority of the targets are black. Would you agree with that? Yes, or or Latinx people too. Um, it's um, you know it's a really interesting question because uh, in terms of what do you control for? So if you if you imagine that you know you could say well you know the rates of of most black defendants are overrepresented among murder defendants, and so that explains the higher number of black defendants who have been exonerated of, say, murder. Um, but then you got to take a step back and think, well, if they're not, it, they're victims of the disproportionate murder rate. I mean, in the same way that black victims are overrepresented among murder yeah, victims, sure, the right. people who didn't commit the crime um, are also victims of that um, that same disproportionate level of violence. But at the same time, that is different from saying that- That's correct. They were targeted because they're black. Uh, it is a a product of it, and it's not something that they're doing that's that's causing it. But you argue that there's a uh, there's a uniform error rate across racial groups. You make an arrest, leads to conviction. There's some X percentage of people who are going to be um, mistakenly arrested and convicted, and that could be constant across racial groups. And if you have say 50 percent more uh, uh, black uh, you know defendants because black men are convicted. Uh, committing 50% more murders, uh, and you find the 50% more being exonerated, you would not be surprised, right? Because it's it, it's going to be consistent. But, but it looks like what you're finding in many of these cases is a far higher proportion than actually uh, the offending rates, suggesting that there's some other factors Yeah, involved. no, there are definitely other factors, right? It, it's so, um, particularly in sexual assault cases, if you look at the, if you you know, look at the best crime ex estimates. Uh, black perrpetrator, white victim, rape cases are are unusual. Um, yeah, I think they're small, about eleven percent of yeah, all. They're cases. a small percentage, um, whereas a much higher percentage of black of sexual assault exonerations are uh, interracial. In half of sexual assault exonerations, eyewitness misidentifications, let's say. Um, black men were convicted of raping white women. So that's kind of a particular. I mean, step. We actually need the data for how many are exonerated overall. But it looks like in about half case of witness misidentification, uh, it's a black men accused of raping a white woman. Right. And I mean, the people are terrible at eyewitness identification. I mean, that's just people just are um, across the board, but we're particularly bad at identifying a stranger of a different race, particularly white people identifying black people. Um, so yeah, that's is that's not the same thing as an overt racial animus, uh, but it is um, that that does and so that does explain some of the disparity that we see. And but we also you know we have lots of cases in uh, with explicit racism in it, where people were uh, became suspects because they were a black person in a white neighborhood. They didn't belong there. They stood out. Or they were, uh, it was a black man dating a white woman, and that's what brought the police's attention to them. Um, and in some even more overt uh, cases of explicit racism. Um, One of my few um, encounters with the police uh, was when I was a graduate student in Berkeley. And I was crossing the street, and uh, this police car comes up, stops in front of me, and asks me to come over and put my hands on the back of the car. I do. I comply. And um, pats me down. And he says, um, yeah, we have reports of a black guy who robbed a, um, you know, I think it was, I don't, 
I, mean, I think he said massage parlor, but I don't think, it, I think it may have been literally massage parlor, hard to say. Anyway, yeah, purely on that basis, I was uh, pulled over. Um, and, you know, who knows? If I looked more like the guy, maybe I would have ended up uh, handcuffs. I mean, it sort of fits the pattern, I guess. Right. I mean, and and if you think it's, it's, it shouldn't be that surprising that we see these disproportionate, I mean, we see a higher rate of exonerations, uh, that, that black people are overrepresented among exonerations than what you would expect. Um, and there's all sorts of, if you start to think about it, you can think of all sorts of things that could be driving it, which is if uh, crime tends to be intra-racial and there's an eyewitness, there's a... And the the perpetrator is is described as a black man. A black man is more like, right, they're more at risk of being falsely identified as the perpetrator. Before we move on, I I just want to drill into sexual assaults a little bit, because I think it's a pretty dramatic area, if that's all right. I believe that in the case of uh, sexual assault exonerations, um, that... It's not just eyewitness misidentification leads to a disproportionate number of uh, black men being falsely uh, convicted. There are other factors that go on. Uh, Prosecutorial misconduct seems like it, and not just prosecutorial, I guess also police misconduct seems like it plays a role uh, in these cases. Um, I think that's true. It's part of the problem with studying this is you often don't have the kind of smoking gun as to what the motivation was. we, you know, we try to be as objective as possible in finding the presence or absence of certain factors. And when there's evidence that comes out that hadn't been disclosed and there's evidence the prosecution had it, then we can call that prosecutorial misconduct. But in terms of their motivations, uh, unless they say something, it's, it's in any one case, it's really hard to, sure, to sure. say that, you know, we can we can prove that this was racially motivated uh, but I think when you look at the the, the patterns, um, even if you can't identify a particular case and say this prosecution was racially motivated, particularly if it's not the kind of overt, explicit racism um, that that you do see in some of the cases. So if it's a case where the defense attorney says you should really take the deal because they're not going to believe you. Who's going to believe a black? Who's going to believe the black defendant accused of rape over this nice victim, um, or a prosecutor who is maybe, uh, and, or police detectives who are more inclined to accept a certain narrative because it's consistent with their stereotypes. These are things that are, you know, they're not necessarily going to leave a paper trail. They're not going to, you're not going to have the, the, you're not going to be able to sort of follow the decision making and figure out what was driving it. I think we can be confident, maybe not in a particular case that this this is what's happening, but that this, this has to play a part on some, uh, on some level. No doubt. We have a lot of anecdotes and it's very hard actually to assume we have a, a kind of unbiased sample of these cases, right? So... We can't. We can. You can pull out a case where it looks like we have evidence of bias. We actually don't know how many comparable cases there are where, say, a police officer effectively had set up a biased lineup for a white defendant either. So I think I agree. It's difficult to get really solid evidence to. Right, but I think we can also. I mean, if we think about it in terms of the context of history and and it's it's there's a big difference between saying I am convinced that this person was convicted because of their race. Versus saying, based on our history and our not too recent past, I mean, it wasn't that long ago where it, people didn't even hide these kind of motivations. I feel very comfortable saying that racial bias contributes to false convictions. The, the other problem with any any study of wrongful convictions, and by, by that I mean false convictions, is that we only know about false convictions that result in exonerations. We don't know about the cases that the person doesn't achieve exoneration. And so many things, there's so much luck involved in being exonerated. Um, if the evidence was destroyed, you wouldn't believe how many evidence rooms and police departments have experienced floods over the years. Really? <laughs> it just seems like <laughs> I always run in. I, I always, always seem raining, to be reading just about raining that. just over. Yes, the evidence was lost when the evidence room was flooded, you know, 15 years ago. Um, there's so much luck involved in getting exonerated that and in and think about it right if you okay so imagine your sort of prototypical exoneration is a um sexual a rape in which there the only issue is who did it right 
And it's you have a victim who identifies the defendant um, in, a, in a lineup or a show up. And that we learn years later when the DNA is tested that it couldn't have been this person. Uh, we know we made a mistake. Uh, here you have a situation where you have a, a an eyewitness who's the victim who had a very clear opportunity to see the perpetrator often, who has absolutely no incentive to not be accurate. They have every incentive to get it right. Um, and they still made a mistake. We have so now think about that in context of an armed robbery, where you have the weapons effect, where the weapon that the perpetrator is holding draws the eyewitness's attention away from their face, are usually a shorter amount of time to observe the person. But you're not going to have DNA in most cases, in the vast majority of cases, to prove that the person didn't do it. So you see far more rape exonerations than you do armed robbery exonerations. But we have every reason to think that the same problems that would produce a false conviction for rape, that that also applies in an armed robbery case. And we'll never know. We'll absolutely, we'll just never learn about it. So the only sample we have to look at the universe of is the universe of exonerations. That's our best proxy for innocence. But it's, it's skewed. We know it has to be skewed. You know, when it comes to um, race and, um, you know, sexual assault, one of the um, statistics I used to quote when I taught the death penalty when I was a philosophy professor is I point out that uh, everyone uh, sentenced to death for rape prior to 1950 in the United States was black. And that was just before they actually, I think they let outlawed um, death penalty for rape. Um, but it shows you, I mean, there's been a kind of consistent component, uh, especially involving uh, rape of victims, the race of the victim uh, in the case of sexual assault cases. But this probably brings us to a, a kind of empirical question. How much do we know about the rates of wrongful convictions? I think we do know we have good estimates in the case of a death penalty based on exoneration, right? Using exoneration as a proxy for innocence. Um, and do we have any, what, what's, what's the number in that case? And what are, there, what are the estimates beyond there, if any? Well, that's a million-dollar question, right? And because of because of how little we know about false convictions, because we have to use exonerations as our proxy. Whenever I talk about this, I always start with a caveat that like there's so much we don't know, and it's not because we haven't tried hard enough. It's just it, there's so much we don't know. But you're right. The death uh, death sentencing is a really interesting. Uh, people who've been sentenced to death are a really interesting population to look at because they get a tremendous amount of scrutiny. Their, their cases um, are more likely to have counsel all the way through the process than somebody who is sentenced for even a very serious crime with a very long sentence. So they're not like other defendants in that way. And we do see a, a much higher rate of exoneration among death-sentenced defendants than we do among other populations. And there's only two possible explanations for that. One is we make more mistakes in death penalty cases and that we are more likely to catch those errors. And they're not mutually exclusive. Why would you think you'd make more errors in death penalty cases? I don't know if we do, but that would be the only explanation. That's only, that's, that is one of two explanations for why we see such One explanation I've heard is that these cases are just so hot, right, that the police really feel like they've got to solve it. They're going to get somebody regardless of whether they've gotten the right person. That's right. So I, I don't know. I, I, they both could be true to some degree. They're not mutually exclusive explanations, but those are the only two possible yeah. explanations. It seems like the, the second one seems extremely plausible because so many researchers are dedicated to this. I think, you know... That's right. You know, you don't... Whatever you want to have... Whatever you think about somebody, you don't want them to be killed for crime they didn't commit. So I think... That that's that's right, and and um, but but it is also possible that we do make more mistakes in in um, capital sure. cases because if I mean if you think about it from the perspective of just you know a prosecutor who's trying to make the best use of their resources, if you have a weak case of somebody breaking into a car, you're not going to pursue this case and take it to trial. You might, I mean, there are always examples of it, but it's it's less likely. But if you have a crime heinous enough to be capital, um, you are going to pursue it if you can, right? Even if there might be some flaws in your case, some holes in your case. So it is entirely plausible that in capital cases, an innocent person is more likely to be convicted just because 
the same level of evidence in a less serious case just wouldn't wouldn't be brought. Uh, but I do think the more um, I, I would I would speculate that it's m- most of the difference that we see is due to the greater scrutiny, and that if we applied the same level of scrutiny to cases that did not result in a death sentence, that we would we would probably have a lot more exonerations from that population as well. So I think there's an actual estimate out there from Samuel Gross. I think it was a twenty. It was, what was you and Sam? Was you and Samuel together? Yeah, uh, yeah, and two other two biostatisticians. Okay. So can you uh, review those findings? Uh, right. So I, um, uh, Sam Gross, at University of Michigan Law School, along with uh, two biostatisticians, Edward Kennedy and Chen Hu, and I, we uh, did a study using people who were sentenced to death. And looking at exoneration rates among those p- prisoners sentenced to death and use survival analysis, which is something that epidemiologists use. Um, There's a really interesting application of that technique, kind of an inverse application. because That's right, because we were looking at the likelihood of being exonerated, and that's a good thing. But usually when you're doing survival analysis, you're looking at mortality, which is a bad thing. So death was... So it was it was a little bit flipped. It took a, it took it took a lot of getting used to to think about that it, that way. And um, we estimated looking at rates of exoneration among death sentence prisoners had they stayed on death row for a certain amount of time. Um, I believe it was twenty years. Uh, you'd expect to see a rate of exoneration of four point one percent because people leave death row all the time for reasons that. Not not due to exoneration. People leave death row because they die of natural causes, because they get their sentence reversed, um, or they're executed. So this was, I think, one of the, I hate to say, disturbing implications of this paper, which is that if you leave death row and get sentenced to life in prison, that actually might be worse for you because people stop paying attention to your case. There's a good chance a whole boatload of people who are actually innocent and just serving life sentences now. I think that's... There, I, I obviously have no idea how many, but I think that there are, there are definitely people out there who have been resentenced and removed from death row, um, who had they stayed on death row would have been exonerated. Um, in part, I think that because the same kinds of, I mean, w- when you're arguing, if you're if you're an attorney arguing for someone who's been sentenced to death that they should get relief. Uh, often the legal arguments you make require some sort of reexamination of the evidence in that it ha- was the error harmless. So the weight of the evidence matters in whether you can get relief on a purely legal claim. In this, so what that means is that somebody who has, you know, not a great case against them, they actually, you know, it was a close case, they're more likely to get relief on a legal error that doesn't result in exoneration. So the the people who leave death row and get resentenced, I think probably on average, those are the people with on average weaker evidence against them. Wow. And so thus more likely to be innocent. That seems very plausible to me. So do we have any numbers beyond the 4.1% for the likelihood of uh, wrongful conviction? I mean, there's, you know, there's, you know, there are studies that that try to do similar types of exercises, looking at um, cases in which, you know, examining, say, DNA exonerations and, and trying to draw estimates from that. And, you know, the it's just incredibly difficult to, um, it's, it's just incredibly difficult to, to make estimates. The only reason I think that we felt comfortable doing so in the, in, uh, um, in the context of the death penalty, and even then, with a lot of caveats, that it's just an estimate, um, is that those are the cases where, A, the records are the best. You're most likely to get the, the underlying records. Um, you know, the, the, the opinions tend to be published opinions. There's more written, written petitions that you can get access to. And also that they, get, that they get the kind of scrutiny that they do. You actually have, it's not just in terms of the justices, you have outside groups, innocent projects, that take an interest in these cases and do an incredible amount of external due diligence. So it's sort of an external actor in some sense that's driving these 
changes. That's right. And um, we call these actors uh, professional exonerators. So they are innocence organizations um, and also conviction integrity units and prosecutors' offices uh, that are huge drivers of exonerations. Um, and there has been a proliferation of them. I believe uh, when I last looked, there were 56 conviction integrity units in the United States, still a very small percentage, but um, a, a lot more than there than there used to be. Um, there's also, a, a, I think, roughly the same number of innocence organizations. There may be some more. Um, but they're, some are better resourced than others, but all of them get more requests for assistance than they can help with. So they have to triage. And part of their triage is just figuring out which are the, the most likely to actually lead to exoneration. Um, but some of them, it's actually a lot of them have a requirement that you have to have a certain number of years left to serve on your sentence. So it, that's, that's, wow. that is, they have only so many so if attorneys you're, so to if go you're, around. So if you're close to the end of your sentence, they're not going to give you attention, and thus those people likely will be lost. No, there are... There are people who've been exonerated even after they've been released, but that's much less common. And it's it, if you talk to any of these attorneys, it's not that they think that the person, uh, you know, an innocent person who's only got a year or two left to serve. We say only a year, like that's nothing. It's actually a long time. Um, or who has been, who's actually been released and on parole. It's not that they don't have a lot at stake uh, and that, you know, if they're innocent, they deserve exoneration. It's just that they have to pick which cases they're sure. going to put their resources behind. And, you know, depending on where you are, if you're an innocent defendant who's been convicted, whether or not you're ultimately exonerated may depend on just is there a well-resourced innocence organization in your in your jurisdiction that's willing to help you? Um, that's really, you know, these are factors that have nothing to do with the underlying strength of your claim. It's It's just serendipity. Just like, I mean, if... You have DNA of if there's biological evidence that existed that could exonerate you, but it's been destroyed in a flood, or it's just a a department that had lousy evidence retention policies. I mean, that's that's totally out of your hands, but that could make all the difference in whether you ever get exonerated. You know, I recall you know just not wanting to waste resources on cases that they perceive as comparatively low value. This is this is actually le- this intersects with an interesting issue of uh, wrongful execution. Um, because, of course, innocence projects don't dedicate a lot of evidence, e- effort to trying to figure out whether someone who's executed is innocent because you, know, you can't—they've they, already been killed. But I believe that there were laws passed, or at least some jurisdictions prevented post-death testing of DNA. Is that right? I, I don't know the specifics, but I do know—part you know, of it is just trying to find the best place to use your resources, where you can do the most good. Um, but— also, just legally, like, how do you get into court and say, hey, judge, compel the state to turn over this evidence to get tested when the case is closed? Like, there's no active case anymore. I mean, there's just, like, no, often no legal legal avenue in which to do it. The state isn't going to agree to it, and the court doesn't have a case before it. So there really isn't it's kind of, a mechanism. It's kind of bizarre. It seems like, it, well, I mean, look, clearly it seems like one would want to know. Yes. <laughs> or do you? <laughs> I guess, yeah, if some people have different interests, they probably don't want to know. Yeah. We do see posthumous exonerations. Uh, we do have some posthumous exonerations in the registry. People um, who have been executed or people who have died? Uh, people who have died. And it's often a case where there's a family member who has fought very, very hard. Um, and often the process has sort of gotten started already. Um you know, the, the, the legal mechanism for doing so, the, the habeas petition, the post-conviction petition has already gotten underway. Um, they're a lot less common um, than you would, but the, when somebody's been executed, I mean, that that's loaded. Yeah, I was a little bit obsessed with this a couple of years ago, and so I dug into the kind of literature on wrongful executions. Uh, there are a couple of cases that really stand out. You know, the Carl Stoluna mm-hmm. really stands out, Todd Willingham, I really stand out. There's, I think there's been a lot of literature written about both cases. Um, there's a real consciousness now. I, I, as far as I know, in fact, part of the reason people, the American population has begun to 
turn against the death penalty, at least from surveys, people worry about wrongful executions. And so I don't know if these cases have driven it, but it seems like the number of exonerations uh, has slowly seeped into public consciousness as potentially leading to the possibility, uh, significantly greater than zero, that someone be wrongfully executed. So it seems to have affected public opinion, judging what people tell surveys. I, I agree. I think, and I think this kind of gets back to your your question at the beginning when you asked about is the focus on uh, actual innocence sort of detracting from some other justice issues. But if you think about it in terms of the death penalty, I mean, imagine if it, you know, 4%, right? So just go with a 4.1%. That's a that's an unacceptably high number. If that were true, let's even say we doubled it, right? And we said it was, you know, 8, 8% are actually innocent. You know, it's still most people who are convicted and sent to death row are actually guilty. The danger that comes from executing an innocent person might make, often I think makes people say it's not worth it. Even if nine out of 10 are guilty, it's just, it's absolutely not worth it. Um, but it also is, like it's just, we, we can't do it right. Let's just not even, it's, it's, not, it's not worth it. To um, to have this penalty, we can we can do without it. There's lots of states that don't have it. They're not falling apart. Yeah, the numbers have been reduced, been going down over the past yes. few decades. Right. So uh, you know, a number of different things I think are driving that. Um, one is I think people are uh, public opinion is shifting on the death penalty. It's um, not as strong as it used to be, and, and part of that is I think driven by the innocence movement. Um, the fact that people are recognizing that the errors are more common than what we would consider acceptable. And also, you know, crime has gone down. And I think, you know, that's obviously a big part of it. The quality of representation in a lot of places has is improved dramatically. Yeah, I think this is actually kind of undiscussed component of exonerations. You know, someone once said, I think many people have said that um, the people who are falsely convicted are almost always poor and uh, almost always have a public defender. And so it looks like if the equality is going up, you probably would see fewer wrongful convictions. Is that because of these external groups coming in? Well, yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, we don't have financial information on the exonerees in the database. But yes, suffice it to say that we have we have our share of white collar um, white collar criminals who who are exonerated. But for the most part, it is it, it does seem to be people of lower socioeconomic groups. It's also hard to assess the quality of their representation based on the information that we have. In death cases, a, you know, it wasn't, I'm thinking about North Carolina, which is a jurisdiction I know best in terms of the death penalty. Um, you know, there were cases in the 90s and the 80s where somebody would be appointed. They wouldn't be a public defender. I mean, a public defender, at least that's what they do all day, right? And if they are well-resourced enough, you can often do no better than a public defender because that is all they think about all day long. And they're really well-trained. But the key, the key caveat there is well-resourced, Exactly. Right? All these public defenders have, you right. know, 40, 50 cases on their docket. Oh, more than, more that, than that, way yeah. more than that. Um, but you know, there are you know there would be cases where somebody who his only experience, you know, he'd been a lawyer, it's like a tax lawyer, or something yeah, like that. done yeah. real estate yeah. deals, had never, you know, and there they don't appoint more than one lawyer; it's just one lawyer for a death case, and you know, those death cases, cases are very expensive to actually to investigate. Yeah, yeah but yeah. you know, but they wouldn't actually put the resources; the court wouldn't, you know, approve funds for an expert or proper investigation. And and so that's really true. Like North Carolina has an indigent defense commission where, you know, they mandate that there have to be two capital two attorneys to represent somebody charged with a death case. They, you know, have to have a certain level of experience. There's money for experts. So, you know, you see the quality of representation go up. So that's changed, do you think, by it, statute in general or just by kind of public pressure? Uh well, the public pressure is what leads to the statute. I think that um, it's not universal, but uh, it's much more common now to see uh, more rigorous defense standards um, for at least capital cases. I think the when I think about all the exonerate, you know, the limits of exonerations as a proxy for innocent, it's the best proxy we have. But where we're really missing is in the low-level misdemeanors. We have absolutely no idea how many of those cases are false convictions. We know we have some in our in the database, but 
when you think about the under-resourced either public defender's office or I think even worse are the court-appointed attorneys who sort of take it on a contract basis who um, you know, have very like low caps on how much they're allowed to, to bill for a particular case. There's no resources for investigation. There's very little time to do any consultation. Um, and the stakes are seen as very low. So people are encouraged to plead and they say, you know, then you'll be done. You don't have to serve any time. But there's all these collateral consequences that they suffer once they've been convicted even of a misdemeanor. That's, I think, that's the real great unknown. I mean, I think of it like the ocean, you know, how much do we actually know about life in the ocean? Like that's the deep depth, right, that we don't know. I know it's bad. Like I believe it's really bad, uh, the rate of false conviction among misdemeanor uh, misdemeanor defendants is is high, but we're going to miss most of it. You know, your paper with some of the gross actually connected with the recent uh, discussion of sexual assault, because you see this number quoted consistently, which is about 8% of sexual assault accusations are false. And having read your paper, it's quite clear to me that people have no idea what- We don't have any idea. Um, I think someone actually looked at that figure and they could not trace it back to a source. Actually, there was a source, but the source basically had no evidence. But yeah, you, you, the only way to figure out whether someone's telling the truth or not is actually to file the cases to the end, have a large sample, see how many are exonerated. Mm-hmm. That gives you basically a lower, ba- a lower bound on it. Are but, there, but that's never been done actually for sexual assault. And and we, we get asked this all the time, you know, about um, they'll look at how many cases involve perjury or false accusation, and they'll look at sexual assaults or rape cases and say, well, look at all these cases that involve perjury. But it's often, you know, a, a police officer lied about some aspect of the case, and we would we would count that as perjury or false accusation. But in terms of, you know, victims coming forward and lying, saying this happened when it didn't, it we have cases like that. That, that does happen. But anybody who claims to know how often or what percentage of them are is just... I mean, Basically, what I can say confidently is that it has happened. It is it's some number of cases, but I would never venture a guess as to how how often it happens, based on exonerations anyway. So I want to turn now to some of the possible solutions to the problem of wrongful conviction. So, um, you know, technology's changed a lot since we realized this is a large-scale problem. We now have DNA testing. There's a lot more cameras everywhere. And so it seems like right now there's actually something of a conflict between people who are working against wrongful convictions and civil libertarians, right? It seems like one of the best ways to reduce the rate of wrongful convictions would be to have every male on the planet contribute DNA to a database and therefore we'd be able to tell whether someone was wrongfully convicted of rape. No, not necessarily. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I don't disagree agree with some of it but if if my you know if if i'm accused of a murder and there's blood left at the scene you don't necessarily have to know whose blood it is to know it's not mine if i'm the suspect right i just need to be excluded yes to then catch the person who left the blood at the scene you might want that that's right that's right i i think but often having a clear perpetrator can take the heat off someone who might be a suspect right so if there is say blood at the scene of some kind is not mine. You don't know whether I've got a collaborator, something like that, you know, but if I, you can trace it back to me and then you find out, hey, I'm actually, I've been accused of these other things also, that definitely takes the focus off the person sure. you may be thinking about. It just gives you more data, right? Right, it does. So, so it seems like there is... I'm just saying I don't think it's quite as as okay. stark. And I think your, your, your camera issue is, you know, there was an officer in um, Baltimore who... <laughs> turned off his body camera to go put drugs somewhere and then turned it on and said, oh, look, I found these drugs right where the defendant was. But he didn't realize that actually it kept recording for it. Oh, really? It, yeah, it wasn't. He wasn't actually hiding what he thought he was hiding. So it was exactly the kind of thing that, you know, defendants say he planted the drugs. And you say, come on, he didn't plant the drugs. Well, actually, we have it on camera. He did. Um, cell phone date is another one. I think you had mentioned before that, um, you know, I know that anywhere I go, somebody could figure it out if they had access to my phone because I have my phone with me all the time. So you see, but more- these things are happening anyway, right? So these, like this, the the surveillance. I think about it. Um, you know, in some parts of the, of the world, you, anywhere you go, you're going to be on on CCTV. A friend of mine in Beijing claims that you can't commit 
a crime in Beijing and get away with it for more than 24 hours. But a lot of this is due to private actors, right? This is, I mean, it's it's sort of a bigger question than any sort of criminal justice reform can answer. Just a question of do we avail ourselves to this? Have you seen any benefit from this increased amount of data uh, in exonerating uh, people? Have you found, say, an increased number of people exonerated through cell phone data or even cell phone footage or CCTV uh, or, or the increasing you know, amounts of uh, data available in DNA databases. We're now seeing cases where people are being convicted through DNA databases. But I'm going to assume that you're going to start seeing a few cases of people being exonerated right. once you actually track the person down. Yeah, I think you're going to see... Uh, I think it's going to take a few years for, I think, us to start to see that because exonerations take a long time. Also, as the technology is available, then it's available at the trial level. And one, I mean, a, central to our definition of an exoneration um, for most of our exonerations, unless it's a, a pardon based on innocence, most of our exonerations are some new evidence that wasn't presented at the original time of trial. Um, you know, I think part of the problem with with some of some of these um, technological advances is that they're maybe not as solid as we think they are. So the cell phone tower ping, you know, your cell phone pings a certain tower, and people think that means you had to have been there, but actually it's much more complicated than that it can it can ping multiple towers so it's not as probative as we as the issue of the serial case actually exactly exactly um it's uh, I all this will seem to be changing as bandwidth increases it seems like you're probably going to get more granular data on people's locations my, yes. my personal theory let me tell you my personal theory and you sure. can tell me is that look over time not only do you have cell phone data you're going to actually have wearable clothing <laughs> So be able to tell not only where somebody is, but actually what they're doing at that point in time. So you'll know from my, you know, synthetic, you know, Wi-Fi connected shirt whether I'm, you know, running very fast or whether I'm moving. Once you get data at that granular level, that may be a boon. It actually, yeah, you essentially accelerometers on your. It is iPhone. incredible how much data I have allowed about myself. I'm like, well, I don't care if somebody knows how many steps I took today, but... And my guess is for defendants, right, if there's a class issue and people don't have access to technology now, they may have access to it in the future, mm -hmm. even if they're lower socioeconomic level, mm -hmm. and thus will have data about people who are probably more likely to be accused than you or I of these crimes, and that may be potentially exonerating. Yes. Uh, on the other hand, I was just reading a case today that we're about to post where a person was acquitted of a... I'm sorry, he was convicted of a murder from the mid-1980s. I think it was 1986. And he just got exonerated this month. Um, and he had four or five alibi witnesses that he was in a different city at the time. But the jury didn't believe it. They believed the person who said he was my cellmate. And, you know, he was in jail on another charge. And he confessed to me. So, I, you know, I've seen enough cases where... But presumably, presumably, technology would override. I don't, hope. I I in, don't in know. Case. I mean, I think that if you have, I've seen enough cases, and I'm not not always the case, right? Every case is a little different, but uh, and every jury is a little different. But I've seen enough cases where people had, you know, multiple fairly disinterested alibi witnesses who could corroborate the time they were with the defendant because you know they went to a store together and they have the receipt from the the time they were there and what they bought and yet somehow they get convicted so it does happen i think about that in the case of the central park five uh which is interesting case for many many reasons um so please remind her i think most people are generally aware of it but can you give us the, the background over time my students have been less so but now with the uh with the movie they they tend to know it Central Park Five. There was a jogger in New York in the late 1980s. I think it was 1989, uh, who was viciously attacked and raped and beaten. Um, and there were five young boys. I mean, I think they ranged in age from maybe 15 to 17, but but pretty young, um, who had been in the park that night and were taken in for questioning. Um, and they. Uh, I think most of them, I don't think all of them did, but most of them gave statements um, that they had participated in the rape and very vicious beating of this woman. Um, before trial, the DNA was tested and it excluded them. It was one person, um, but they still got convicted. Um, they still got convicted because on the basis of their confessions, 
Um, and it wasn't until, I guess this goes back to your point you were making before, it actually, somebody came forward and said, I, I'm the one who committed this crime, and it was his DNA that they were exonerated. So even in cases where you think that something is pretty dispositive, at the very least reasonable doubt, doesn't always work. I think a lot of factors played into this one. Again, a high-profile case, police felt like they had to solve and they had you know, a potential perpetrators who were not in very high value socially from them. That, uh, that's absolutely right. And I remember, because I, I grew up in upstate New York, um, so we would, you know, it's a pretty different world from New York City, but we would get the New York City papers and get the, the media from there. And I mean, that case was just the biggest story. It was just, I mean, it was just, a, just such a horrific attack on this woman. Uh, nobody expected her to live or recover. She did, thankfully. Um, and you had confessions, right? I mean, you had you had confessions from these boys. We know more now. We know how somebody might confess to something they didn't do. And we know that the kinds of people who are likely to confess to something they didn't do, a, a big factor is youth. They were young. I mean, they were, you know, I think maybe as young as 14. I think that's about right, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of the first forays of Donald Trump into politics when he, quote unquote politics, when he took a, you know, two-page ad out in the New York Times, basically. Um, and sticking by it, sticking right? By, yeah, he refuses he's to admit he's wrong, yeah. There are, there are some players from that who are absolutely convinced that, okay, Mateus Reyes, the person who confessed to doing it and who, and it was his DNA, um, they think, well, they must have participated as well. Uh, even though their statements didn't really add up together. Um, they didn't even know where she was, actually. They had no idea where the crime was And, committed. you know, the, the drag mark, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible, but you have to think, the things that you have to think about in assessing the credibility of a confession, but, you know, the, just the, the way the vegetation was at the time, it just did, it looked like, it didn't look like a group of six boys, which would have been six people with, with him, um, or f at least five if he came along later, which is one of the theories that, um, that the boys attacked her and then this, this this guy just kind of stumbled uh, across her and then attacked her again. You know, this case, uh, although it doesn't fit the technical F definition of a kind of group conviction, feels like some of the other cases discussed that have racially biased angles. So we've seen cases uh, over the past 30 years where, if, in the case of, say, drug deals, where large numbers of people are convicted of drug dealing, and they're almost always... Uh, Black or Latino, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not really aware recently of large numbers of white kids being convicted falsely of of rape. So I, I this feels like a, very similar to these kinds of uh, drug cases. There are a couple of very large cases. There was one in uh, I think in Texas where um, basically a kind of informant um, got about 39 people convicted, and and then there are similar cases in uh, in L.A. So it, and Baltimore. Philadelphia, there's some group exonerations. Actually, it's uh, glad you brought that up. So the National Registry of Exonerations has uh, thus far focused on individual exonerations. And part of our definition of an, of an exoneration is that it requires some sort of individualized revisiting of the evidence. And the problem with these sort of mass or group exonerations is that it's often sort of a Domino falls, and then a lot of other domino fall, uh, dominoes fall. So I think about the the Massachusetts cases where the lab tech was dry labbing, which means that they said they were doing the tests on the drugs, but they weren't. And then you know huge swaths of convictions are vacated. Those aren't an individual revisiting of the evidence in a particular person's case. So we've never really known quite how to fit them in. So they're not in the registry. But we are launching a group exoneration part of the website. Um, hopefully in the spring or, or early summer, uh, to, to look at these. Because if you think about it, you know, individual exonerations are really focused on the individual defendant or a few defendants where the facts are really revisited. But you know, we also care about these, these sort of more systemic corruption cases that lead to exoneration of a number of defendants. And there the focus of inquiry is usually on some official actor, right? So usually a police officer who was is discovered to have been corrupt, planting evidence or um, you know, fabricating lab results or something like that. So we, we are going to be devoting some resources to that in the near future. 
in uh, this stage, do you have any estimate on the magnitude of this problem? Is it far small if you take some of these group exonerations? You know, some might be a few dozen defendants. Um, if it's, I, I mean, I think, I don't know off the top of my head how many were in Tulia, Texas, which is what I think you were just referring to. Sometimes we don't even have an accurate count of the number of defendants whose cases were cleared. So like, I think Ramparts is a good example. Um, there in Philadelphia, there have been, uh, I believe over a thousand cases have been, uh, convictions have been vacated based on the discrediting of a particular arresting officer many thousands in Massachusetts based on the the lab scandals there. There's actually two separate lab scandals. One was a case of dry labbing where they just weren't, the, the analysts- I like that term dry labbing. It wasn't labbing at all, actually. No, no it's just faking it, right? Um, and then another um, was a lab, lab analyst who is sort of, um, sort of dipping into the samples that she was supposed to be testing. Um, they're, they're often of a very different nature. I mean, the, the process of exoneration is, it's a it's really hard to be exonerated. I mean, the whole presumption of innocence that you get before you're convicted, I mean, and quite understandably flips once you've been convicted. So now, once you've been convicted, there's there aren't really good mechanisms to revisit the facts. I mean, the appellate process is about correcting the process error or legal error, but Courts aren't really interested in revisiting facts. So if you discover new evidence, either because the state withheld it or your attorney was ineffective or just something that wasn't anybody's fault, it just wasn't available to you then, it's there's not a lot of mechanisms to get back into court. And, and then there's a tremendous um, – the hurdle that the defendant has to overcome to get that – to get relief is really high, which is why we feel that exonerations are a good proxy for innocence. Of course, we know there have got to be some people who are in the in the registry who are actually guilty. Just like we know there are lots of people who are not in the registry who are actually innocent. Um, with group exonerations, it's even harder because if they throw out a whole bunch of drug convictions because they never tested the drugs, some of those people did have drugs. We know that, but we just don't know who. Yeah, I believe, in fact, there's actually a new case coming out of New York State because they found the algorithms used to basically detangle different people's DNA. There's a new algorithm developed to basically detangle different people's DNA from DNA samples. It looks like that algorithm may not actually be as accurate as people have thought. So this is a thing that's been developing over the past, uh, I think it started about a year or so ago. Wow. I first read the papers about this. Yeah, and I mean, I think- There's a actually proprietary technology built by a company, and there's a black box, and the investigators just using this system without having any idea of how the algorithms actually functioned. So they're now revisiting those cases, throwing many of them out. I would imagine that in those cases, if there's DNA involved, they tend to be more serious cases. And so that there would probably be a, a individualized inquiry as opposed okay. to sort of a, I, mean, I don't know. But, no, no yeah, I think, yeah. I think they are, they're, they're reopening the case. They're probably yeah, not okay. throwing them out entirely. Right. So assuming the material still exists, you can retest it using accepted methods. So I think we're about out of time, okay. Barb, but... Uh, Thanks for coming by. This has Thank been a really for having me. interesting discussion.